The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to the Tabernacle. If you're new here, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors. And if you're not new here, yes, I do still work here. So I just want to clarify that. It's awesome to be back in town and on such a great day. This is Easter. Happy Easter to you. Uh, for Christians, this is one of uh, the biggest Sundays of the year for us because we commemorate again why we follow Jesus. And that is he was God's son sent to the earth to die as a sacrifice for our sins so we could be reconciled to a holy God. He defeated Satan's sin and death by coming back to life on the third day. And if he didn't come back from the dead, we're wasting our time. But he did come back from the dead and that's why we follow him. Because anyone who comes back from the dead is kind of a big deal right? And I'm not talking about someone that was resuscitated on an operating table or by an ambulance or clear, ching, ching. I'm talking three days dead. That's kind of a big deal. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we hope that you'll uh, make a decision, maybe even today, uh, that you would follow Jesus like, uh, like we're about. That's what our church is about. You know, in thinking about Easter, before we get started, I wanted to just share a little bit of my own journey. Um, some of you heard me share it before, but not everyone. I became a Christian when I was about six, seven years old. It's a little fuzzy, right? As everything is when you're six and seven years old. Remember how everything's also a lot bigger when you're six or seven years old, right? And then you go back and you're like, you're not as big as I remember you, right? Uh, or that house or that, you know, whatever it was. But I was six or seven years old. You know, I was born and raised in a Christian home. My father was a, was a pastor and he was a missionary, and so I grew up overseas. I grew up in the mission field, and as I've told some of you before, I remember living in a mission house that was on a little mountainside in the suburbs of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and down in the valley on one side was a church, and down in the valley on the other side was another kind of church. It was a voodoo church, <laughs> and late at night, uh, I could hear the sound of the drums, which when you're a six, seven-year-old white boy living in, you know, Haiti land, that's a little bit frightening, Right? And I remember having conversations with my parents, being awfully disturbed. It's hard to sleep at night when you hear that noise, when you hear that sound. 
And so I'll admit it was probably at that time when I first asked Jesus into my life. And it was mostly out of fear. It was mostly out of fear. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, that didn't really count. Yeah, it does. It does. Fear is a good reason to ask Jesus into your life because perfect love drives out fear, right? But I was aware that there was good and that there was evil and that I was afraid of that thing that was called evil. My parents talked about, well, you know, if you have a relationship with Jesus, that can't touch you. And so I said, well, I want that. And that was my motivation. But as I grew up, I found out that fear kind of followed me. Not the kind of cowardly fear that boys don't ever want to be accused of, but the kind of fear that, if we're honest, we all kind of have, and that's that fear of whether or not we'll be accepted. You know what kind of fear I'm talking about? Because I knew that Jesus had died for my sins, and I placed my trust and faith in Him, but I continued to grow up in the church and live in the church, and I always had this nagging fear that, what if God stops loving me? What if, what if it's not enough? You know, I'm a child of God, but what if I go so far that I might make him mad, right? And so then began my journey of striving. Do you know what I mean by striving? Where I'm trying to clean myself up. I'm trying to make sure that I'm good enough for God, that I'm good enough, right? And we say things that perpetuate this myth like, oh, well, that guy, he's a really good Christian. As if there's such a thing as a bad Christian, right? But in our minds, there is, because we love the way man loves. We don't love the way that God loves. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm trying to be good enough to not lie, to not steal, to not cheat, to make sure that I'm loving. But then I also had other types of fear, and maybe you can relate. The fear of being accepted by people, right? That always starts at a young age. Girls, remember junior high, right? Do I look right? Do I sound right? And there's different ways that we seek the approval of people. And that's driven by fear. And that also perpetuates things like our concern and our worry. Do I look right? Do I have good grades? Do I have enough money? I need a car. No, I need a better car. Study hard. Get a good job. What do they think of me? And then we, you know, kind of keep that going into our marriage. And then we perpetuate it on our children all the things that we should do, and then we put those shoulds on each other, right? Maybe you can't relate, but for me, I found myself striving. I found myself striving with my faith. I found myself striving with my identity. Sports became a big deal, a really big deal. When I came back to the United States with a different culture, I didn't understand what was going on, but there was one thing that I knew that I could do better than anyone else in northern Indiana, and that was play soccer because they were all shooting baskets, right? And here I was soccer jungle boy. So that became my identity, right? That was my identity. And it was how good can I be in, in, in high school? And how good can I be to get on the, the, the state Olympic development team? And then how good could I be in college? And then how could I be or good could I be to be a professional and on and on? But you know what? Eventually there's only just so far your little knees can carry you. And you realize there's a ceiling to your ability, And this striving, though, doesn't seem to go away. The striving to be accepted, to be loved. Well, we've been in a series these last five weeks called Seven Words, where we've been looking at the seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross. He chose to go to the cross to pay for our sin. And and the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them. 
That's why he had come. He'd come to be the sacrifice. He'd come to pay for all of our sin. And the very first thing was, Father, forgive them. There was a thief that was crucified next to him that that placed his faith in Jesus. And he said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus' response to him was, today you'll be with me in paradise. He took care of his mother. He said, behold your mother to the apostle John. And to his mother, he said, behold your son. He was still caring for others. At one point, the, the excruciating pain of the cross was so difficult in the separation from God that he cried out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then as was preached about last week, as he was nearing the end of his suffering, he said, I thirst. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 19. We're going to look at the sixth thing that Jesus said from the cross. And on this resurrection Easter Sunday, I think it's going to be pretty profound for those of us that are still striving or still worrying or fearing. Verse 28, he says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Now this sixth word that Jesus said is probably the most powerful thing he said from the cross. In fact, there may not be any more beautiful words said throughout human history. And this word only appears twice in the New Testament. And it's in these verses that I just read to you. First, the author says, knowing that all was now finished... And then he repeats that word in the Greek when he recounts that Jesus said, it is finished. Now, I know this is Buckley, and I know that this is our 930 service, and and you didn't come here to get an edumacation, but today I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek, okay? So just dig in. We can do this, all right? So uh, uh, wives, just hang on to your husband's hand a little bit. I know he's freaking out just a little bit right now, but we're going to learn just a little bit of grammar. We're going into English class right now. This is that word in the Greek. It's tetelestai. Tetelestai. Now that's one word. In English, we translate it, it is finished. But it's really only one Greek word. Tetelestai. Try it out for size. Say tetelestai. tetelestai. Say it again, just to make sure you're awake. Say tetelestai. tetelestai. Yeah, I just wanted to get you a little accent there, right? And I double-checked that with a Greek expert on our staff. Tetelestai, this is what it means in Greek. And this is, this is the only thing I want you to remember today is tetelestai and what we're going to say about it. It means paid in It means complete or completed. Completed in a perfect way. Nothing left. And when you do translations from any language, but especially from an ancient language into our present day English language, sometimes we need a couple of words to actually grasp the full meaning of this word. And in these verses that I read you, the author says, and he says, After this, Jesus knowing that it was tetelestai, then he said from the cross, tetelestai. It is finished. Only two places it appears. Now, here's the grammar part. This is the cool part. Sorry, I geek out on this kind of stuff, right? Because there's no wasted words in Scripture. That's what our church is based on. No wasted words in Scripture. The tense is perfect passive indicative. 
What? Glad you asked. Let me say that again. It's perfect, passive, indicative. It's a special kind of word. This is what it means. The action that he's talking about, the it that is finished, it's past, it's present, and it's future. It means it was finished, it is finished right now, and it will remain finished in the future. It can't be undone. Oh, can somebody go Haitian church on me, please? White people, we need to wake up a little bit. Let me say that again. It is the perfect passive indicative. It was finished, it is finished, and it will remain finished. You can't undo it. Now, there's a couple other places in the Greek that we see this, okay? So the historians, they start digging through all these other places. Hey, let's look at all Greek literature. Where is it used elsewhere so we can understand? Because nowhere else do we see this in the Gospels. Nowhere else do we see this in the Scriptures. And so they found like a merchant would use the word tetelestai. If someone owed him money and then paid it back and paid all of it off, the debt, are you tracking? The merchant would write tetelestai. It's paid in full. There's not going to be some other little notice that you're going to get at your post office box that says, oh, no, 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 there was some data roaming charges because you've been in Canada too long, right? You're not going to get that little notice. It's paid in full. It's done. It's done. No interest, no more bills. It's paid off. It's a receipt. A servant might say of his work, if he was given a job, if he was given an assignment by his master, when it was done, he would report tetelestai. It's done. It's finished to your exact specifications. I didn't cut any corners. I didn't hold anything back. The exact way that you wanted it done, it was fulfilled. A judge might say tetelestai. After he had uh, pronounced a sentence And the sentence might have been X amount of years of labor, X amount of years in a dungeon, or maybe something worse, like a flogging or an execution. And he would mark on the legal record, the sentence was carried out to completion, tetelestai. And did I mention that it was done, it is done, and it will remain done? That's good news. That's good news. A priest would say tetelestai of a sacrifice. If a perfect sacrifice was brought and it was acceptable, they would say this sacrifice is tetelestai. It is acceptable. It doesn't have a blemish. They didn't bring some three-legged sheep in here. This is a perfect sacrifice that is acceptable, the priest would say. A soldier would say about a perfect victory. A soldier might even uh, uh, cry tetelestai in battle, right? Saying you are finished. And this will be a complete victory. There we will take no prisoners. Ooh, I like that. Last but not least, and probably most profoundly, an artist would say tetelestai about a finished painting or a sculpture. When the last bit of work was done, the last little adjustment, when he put his paintbrush down, he would say, it's finished, it's complete, it's perfect. I'm done. And step back and admire what he or she had created. It's Tedalesta. You get the feel now? So here's the question. Jesus, right before he dies, says, it is finished, paid in full, the work is done, the victory is won, my 
mission is accomplished. My my perfect work of art. What did he finish for us? What did Jesus finish? I'm glad you asked. First of all, his life was about finished, right? His life was about finished. We know from history, even history outside the Bible, that Jesus was a real person, that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius, that you know Jesus had a brother James, that Jesus did wonders, that he was a virtuous man, that he was crucified under Pilate, that his tomb was found empty, his disciples' lives were transformed, and the calendar was changed of human history, right? We know that that stuff happened. His life and his mission was coming to an end. Seconds before he dies, he says, it is finished. But it wasn't just his life that was coming to an end. His suffering was finished. Jesus had to suffer. Okay, It couldn't be a quick, easy death to fulfill everything. To fulfill the sentence, to fulfill the wrath of God against my sin and your sin, Jesus had to suffer. And make no mistake, the cross was the most tortuous device invented by the creative cruelty of man on which to kill somebody. It wasn't quick. In fact, if you're here on Good Friday, you heard me say that the word excruciating literally means from the cross. It was a word invented to describe the pain and suffering of the cross. Excruciating. C-R-U-C-E. Cruce. Cross. That's where it comes from. So his suffering was about finished. But more than that, as Christians, we know that Jesus came to die. He came to pay for your sin. He came to pay for my sin. He came to pay the penalty, to fulfill the wrath of God, to do it perfectly and completely so that God could offer forgiveness. That's when the word tetelestai really starts to take its power, right? Because he says, it was done, it is done, and it will remain done. He's not just saying, oh, this is for the people of the past and my disciples right now, and any who happen to want to follow me in the future that take the time to read the Bible or go to church on an Easter Sunday. No, he's saying that the payment is paid in full. It's completed. To go back to my story, that has implications, doesn't it? That means that my striving can be done. My worry can be done. My fearing can be done. Hey, little Johnny, you don't have to worry about God liking you. You can stop trying so hard to clean yourself up in order to be acceptable to the church or to Christians or to be a good Christian, whatever that means, or to get God to like you. He died on a cross... He paid for your sin because he loved you and he said, Tetelestai, it was done, it will, or it is done, and it will remain done. It was finished, it is finished, it will remain finished. Anybody excited about that at all? Our sin debt is paid in full. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us, So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin. So in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Theologically, we call it the great exchange. This is the gospel. 
I offer my sin to God in exchange. He gives me his righteousness. I offer my trust and my belief in Jesus. In response, he makes me a child of God. Paid in full. Not paid in full as long as you're a good boy. Not paid in full as long as you're a good little girl. Paid in full, adopted, new identity, gospel, and what God has brought together, let no man put under. Tetelestai. Was done, is done, and will remain done. Guys, no other world religion teaches this because no other world religion is true. No other world religion had its leader die on a cross and become the lowest of the low so that he could exalt his followers. Every other religion, it's about us striving and worrying and and working and the checklist and the do, do, do and the don't, don't, don't. God in Christ says, done. Religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says strive, climb, work. Jesus says, Tetelestai. I exchange my sinfulness for his righteousness. Past, present, future, my sin debt is paid in full. This changed my life. So now my striving, where does my striving go? Well, now I find myself believing. I believe that he loves me. I believe he's paid the price. In fact, I, I, I can stop worrying about trying to pay the price. There's going to be no data charges. There's going to be no, nothing that's left for me to do. In fact, one, uh, one evangelist was asked, and I, I wish I'd have thought of this first, but hey, we just steal from other people, right? He was asked one time, what must I do to be saved? And the evangelist responded, Nothing. It's already been done. What must I do? Only believe. Only believe. Tetelestai. It is finished. There's no more doing. There's only believing. And when I really believe, when I really trust, when I really place my faith, it will change everything. Because if he loved me that much... If he gave that much, if he paid that much, if he created that artistic piece, that masterpiece to the extent of which I believe that he's done, that changes everything for me. That means my striving can come to an end. I can take a deep breath. Oh, I don't have to worry about what you think. I love you. I don't care what you think of me anymore. I don't. I love you. Don't care what you think. Is that mean? Sorry. Was that too heavy on Easter Sunday? I care what he thinks. I don't care what you think. Because he said, Tetelestai. I don't have to worry about striving or controlling. You see, when we strive and we have fear and we worry, then we try to respond by controlling. I got to control my kids. I got to control my spouse. I got to control my environment. I control things by what I put on social media. I control with my gossip and with my mouth and with my actions, with my attitudes, with my money. I don't have to control I don't have to justify myself anymore. You know how much time we spend justifying ourselves? We justify our actions. We justify why we're in church. We justify why we're out of church. We justify why we spend the way we do or do the way we do. We can stop justifying. It is finished. 
It's done. It's paid for. This is a new way to live. This is freedom. This is the gospel. I'm free to stop with the envy. Does anyone else struggle with envy? Liars. Envy, it's where all the other sins come from. It's why we lie and cheat and steal and lust and hate. Is because we envy. We don't have what we want. We want what you have. And so we strive, we cut down, or we build up. Whatever that is, it all comes from envy. But it's, you know, it's finished. My identity's in a new place. I don't have to fear anymore. I don't have to run anymore. You know how many people we talk to that, you know, they finally come into church and they've been running for decades? For decades they've been running. Why they run? And, you know, you've heard us say, they all say the same thing. Coming to church is like, oh, you're lucky, man. I'm surprised this place hasn't burst into flames, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, because you're the most specialist sinner ever. There's never been a special sinner as you. Not even Hitler. Yeah. You know, not even the Nazis, right? Or Al-Qaeda. You're the special one, right? But we all do it. I'm not putting down. I'm just saying we run. We run. We're hiding Because we think somehow we won't measure up. I got news for you. You'll never measure up. And you don't have to because Jesus did measure up. The priest said of him, Tetelestai. The merchant said of your debt, Tetelestai. And Satan, sin and death, they were finished. They were finished. It was a triumphant victory cry when he said, Tetelestai. There's no room in my life for blame anymore or for hate anymore. Or even hurt. And I know we all have hurts. And we can harbor bitterness and and not forgive. I mean, we all have our hang up. Everybody's got something. But this is why Jesus died. Jesus died not just for your sin, but for my sin. And not just for our sin, but also for their sin. So he didn't just die on a cross to forgive you. He also died on a cross to pay for all the injustice that's ever been committed against you. And so when we hang on to that, those hurts and that bitterness and that hatred and that rage, we're saying that Jesus' death wasn't enough. Uh Uh-oh. See, it wasn't just my forgiveness. It's Jesus died to forgive whoever would call on him. It is finished. Because it was the ultimate injustice ever perpetuated by man. And because it was the perfect passive indicative It means that it was done, it is done right now, and it will remain done. And that's a good deal. That's the meaning of it is finished. That's the meaning of tetelestai. That's what I want us to get this Easter. In fact, would you say that word one more time? Just say tetelestai. It is finished. It's finished. It's all finished. And the only reason that we resist is our pride. No, nobody pays my bill. Have fun trying to be the Messiah. Have fun trying to come back from the dead on your own. Right? We can't do that. When we come to the end of ourselves and we come to the end of our fear and the end of our worry and our hurting and our hatred, you see, here's the real question for us. Here's the real question for us. Is are you finished yet? Are you finished? Have you ever had someone say that to you? It's usually at the end of a rant, right? And I'm so sick of this, and this happens, and then this people, and this is the world, and I hate it, and this is what's going on, and nobody likes me. And, and then someone looks at you, and it's usually like this, and they go, are you finished? I just want to punch them. Please don't punch me today. 
But I do want to ask you that question. If Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross and said, it is finished, I just want to ask you, I want to ask us collectively, our church, this question. Are you finished yet? Are you finished hating, hurting, blaming, hiding, running, justifying, worrying, fearing, striving? Is it working for you? He said it's finished. It was finished. It's finished right now. And it's going to remain finished. And our response is just to believe. So there's no high pressure sales pitch from our church today. It's just this. If you're not a Christian and someone invited you here today, we ask that you consider placing your faith and trust in Christ. How do you become a Christian? Only believe. Only believe. You can have a conversation with Jesus right now and ask him to come into your life. Only believe. If you believe, it's finished. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's a good thing. And if you're here today and you are a Christian and you're ready to stop with the worry, with the strife, with the fear, with the concern, you know what? It's the same response. Believe. Believe today that it's finished because he said so. In the past, in the present, and in the future, it's done. You could take a deep breath. <sighs> That's a good thing. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to believe. God, I believe you're speaking. You speak through your word. You speak through your servants. I believe you're with us. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray right now that they would ask you to come into their life and they would choose to believe that you've paid for their sin so that they can stop paying for their sin. And I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. God, I also ask for those of us that have called ourselves Christians that today would be a day that we would choose to believe that it truly is finished, past, present, and future. And I don't have to worry about earning anything. You've already done it. God, I ask that also in the name of your son because it's for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it one more time. Say tetelestai. One point sermon. Those are the best. Before you go, I want you to think about that. Are you finished? Spend a little time right now just thinking. Are we finished? Because this for some of us could change the direction of our life forever. God bless you.